Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yakir Englander. Today, we'll be talking to Schneer Zaman Newfield, the author of Degrees of Separation. In the past months, many of us were introduced to the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in the U.S. by the Netflix show Unorthodox. Some of us also watched the painful documentary One of Us on Netflix too. The ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, and mostly the Hasidic community, which is one of the two main streams in ultra-Orthodox Jewish world, is an example of a community who decided to exist in the midst of Western secular society, but to lead a very different way of life. The community focuses on, on the questions of why we are alive, and what is the mission that humans, and more specifically Jews, has to fulfill in this life. The days of the community members are dedicated to study of the Jewish holy text, to charity and prayers. One of the unique elements in this community is that each and every act in life, from praying to cooking, putting clothes on, making love, or going to the bathroom, should be dedicated to their spiritual growth, and they doing it by having clear and exact ways how to do these actions according to the Jewish law, the halacha. Naturally, this unique way of living fit many of its members, but not all of them. Many of those who do not fit and sometimes even suffer will stay in the community and will lead their lives with compromises and even by lying to themselves and to the community. A few of them will have the courage to leave the community and to pay the price of their decision. In the next years after their decision to leave the community, they will be constantly running between narratives, between wishing to fit in Western society and knowing that probably 
it will never happen since their past is part of who they are. I wonder if any of them will ever find peace in their hearts. Today we're hosting Dr. Schneer Zalman Newfield to talk and learn about his book, Degrees of Separation, Identity Formation, Why Leaving Ultra-Orthodox Judaism, published at Temple University Press in 2020. Dr. Newfield is an assistant professor of sociology in the Department of Social Sciences, Human Services and Criminal Justice in the Borough of Manhattan Community College, City University of New York. So Schneer Zalman, welcome to our show. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to, to decide to write this incredible book? Sure. So first of all, thanks so much for having me. And um, to, to get into your question, uh, so for me, because my book is about people who grew up in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community and then left, there's an obvious connection with my own life story. I grew up Lubavitch in the Hasidic community in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And in my early 20s, I began to sort of move away from that community. Then uh, uh, in part related to uh, my process of going to college. Um, and then uh, essentially by the time I left college, in my mid-20s, I was already uh, very much on the outside of the community in a lot of important ways. And then uh, shortly after graduating from uh, Brooklyn College uh, with my BA in psychology, I uh, enrolled in the PhD program in sociology at NYU. And uh, I knew from the outset that I wanted to study people like myself who grew up in the ultra-Orthodox community and then left. So that's really what I began to study. And what I found was that the literature on people leaving uh, um, religions, the scholars tended to assume a binary uh, form of religious identification. So essentially, they tended to assume that either people were a part of their community that they grew up in, or they left and they were completely disconnected from it. And I knew that this did not correspond with my own experience. So I uh, started to do interviews. I interviewed eventually 74 uh, men and women from two Hasidic sects, two communities, the Lubavitch and Satmar communities. And I found that uh, what the Scott, many scholars, uh, especially in, in, in sociology that I was looking at, uh, that were talking about these issues, uh, that what they were describing did not correspond with what my uh, uh, people I was interviewing had experienced either. So this is really what led me to, um, to, to, to write the book and to to, to focus on this issue of the what uh, some scholars refer to as the residual effects, the aspects of people's identity that stay with them even after they go through major life transformations. And uh, that's really why I uh, gave the, my book the title Degrees of Separation to highlight this point that even though people were leaving their community and in many ways changing really significant things about their upbringing, uh, uh, such as their, their dress, what they wore, um, 
the kinds of foods that they ate, did they keep the laws of the kosher restrictions or not, um, much of what they thought, what they believed, uh, how they practiced their life. But still, there were these residual effects, these things that stayed with people even after they left. So again, there's degrees of separation. They're separated from their community, but not completely disconnected. They're still connected in significant ways. And that's uh, what led me to, again, to write the book and to to focus on these issues. Thank you so much. Um, so so I, I wonder if you if you can elaborate for us a little bit more because when when we read the book and we we think about this phenomena, um, and later we will speak even about the terms. Um, this very uh, people with a lot of um, of uh, they need a lot of courage, right? And and um, they leave the family, they leave the community, they leave God, they leave their religion. Do you find by the interviews that they know what do they want to leave? Right. So this is exactly uh, a part, a big part of. I'm sort of chuckling because this is a big part of the the issue, right? So um, uh, I, I think your question is is really. Uh, uh, so uh, so on target because essentially there's an assumption right both in popular culture but even I think among some scholars that tends to assume that the process is a highly um, um, organized and and um, um, pre planned sort of thing where people know what the destination is before they get there. And I think that that's really not the way that people in general experience their life, including people who are going through major life transformations, such as leaving a a form of religion. I think that um, there's a line... um, uh, Now I'm trying to... um, remember the line um, uh, from Darkness at Noon, uh, uh, where he talks about how he only became uh, a heretic. He only um, uh, sort of left the doctrines of the Communist Party. Uh, He only realized later that he had already done it, that it was something that sort of snuck up on him, that he didn't realize that it was becoming a you know, uh, uh, counter-revolutionary or whatever, you know? And I think that that's really, um, it's interesting. It's not, in a sense, sort of explicitly um, central to to my book, but I think undergirding all of it is really this kind of, um, this the sense that people don't know uh, or don't plan their, their, their personal transformations in this kind of linear, and, and logical way, that people go through life, they have experiences, they're exposed to different influences, and then they respond to those and they, they, they calibrate their own thinking, their own behavior accordingly, and then gradually they sort of end up in a different place than, um, you know, than they started out and maybe even a different place than they had intended. And I could speak on a personal note I remember very distinctly um, early on in my career at Brooklyn College, I was standing in the the 
the bookstore at Brooklyn College, and a dear friend of mine from from uh, childhood who also grew up Lubavitch came in, and I was sort of shocked that he was there. And then it turned out we had both enrolled in Brooklyn College, and we started speaking, and we both had um, we both had beards uh, so, uh, that were required by the Lubavitch community. And as we were talking, he made a comment like, uh, "You'll see by the end of college, your beard will be gone." And I said, Chas v'shalom, God forbid, what are you talking about? This is this is not my plan. I'm not here to, quote unquote, go fry, to leave the Orthodox community. I'm here to become educated, whatever. And uh, lo and behold, he was right. <laughs> Very shortly before I graduated uh, college, I had shaved my beard. And, you know, of course, someone could say that I was just being... Um, you know, and I was in denial. I was just trying to hide it from myself uh, that, you know, this was really the path that I was on. But I think the deeper truth is that people are not aware of the exact direction that they're headed. I knew that I wanted something different than I had growing up in Lubavitch. I knew I wanted an education. Um, I knew I was interested in intellectual uh, um, thought. I was interested in understanding what other people are thinking about, what's going on in other cultures, other religions. But I didn't know or didn't think, well, this is exactly where I'm going to end up. And I don't think that I'm unique, that this experience is unique to me. I think that this is actually much more common than is commonly assumed or even uh, assumed among scholars, that, that people's lives take shape based on all sorts of contingent factors and that it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to plot the trajectory of anyone's life um, in advance. And is it true also when people coming from secular life to religious life, or when when we look um, on on uh, what we call chosrim bitshuva, people who become religion, they know more just because they have institute that most of the time, you know, they join to them, like the synagogue, the, the re- other religious institute, like the yeshiva. And I even think about the terms, right? So the terms are very interesting. And and um, you, you can... You, you can um, um, please teach us about the American terms. But in in Hebrew, we when someone be, come from secular life to religious life, we call them chozer bitshuva, someone who return with an answer, which means that we are focusing on on what we know with the answer, right? But when someone leave, we don't call them coming back, return. We call them yotzim. You go out, right? You leave. Besheela with a question, which is exactly what you speak about, like the unknown. You have a question, but you really don't talk with answers. So, so it's interesting because I interpret the terms slightly differently than what you described, and I think it relates to what we're talking about. That even the term Yotim Besheela, it it is it's to my ears, it implies that the reason why people left is because they had questions. In other words, I would say that that term itself is problematic because it it privileges intellectual reasons for leaving. And I think that this is one of the ways that you see 
um, what we're talking about play out in my book. Because in my book, I have a whole chapter on the kind of internal debate among people who leave over the reasons for leaving. And uh, uh, essentially, there's two camps within this uh, debate. On the one hand, you have what I call the intellectual camp, the people who claim that the reason why they're leaving their community is for intellectual reasons. They either have found flaws in the Bible, flaws in the Talmud. They found contradictions between these holy texts and scientific realities, evolution, or what have you, you know? Or, and, and then on the other side is a kind of emotional social group. The people who frame their exiting as based on uh, uh, social things that happen to them, often traumatic things, sexual abuse, uh, issues of sexual identity, um, or, or um, the oppression of sexual minorities within these communities, um, and, and and things like that. So I would argue that, that the truth is that these are narratives that people who leave construct. So they they develop these narratives that, that prioritize or, or, or make central uh, some aspect of their story. Again, either the intellectual argumentation that they were struggling with or the social uh, kind of lived experience that they had in their community. But in fact, people are not just a heart or a mind. People have a heart, they have a mind, they have a body. All of these things are working uh, simultaneously if, if in complex ways. So I think that people in reality leave both for intellectual reasons and for social or emotional reasons. But again, in, in the, in the, um, within the population of people that leave, there's often the sense that you have to pick one. You have to choose. You're either on team A or team B. And I think, again... Can you say why? Sure, sure. But, but, but just before that, Please. To, to, to tie it back into this thing yes. about the labels, the label, Chosin B'Sheilah, I would say that's... Yotzim. Yotzim. Yotzim Leaving with... Yes, I'm sorry. Yotzim B'Sheilah. People who are leaving quote-unquote, with a question uh, or for a question, I would argue that that term itself kind of privileges the intellectual camp or the intellectual narrative for leaving. Um, so why do they do this? I, I talk about this in the book, and, and I, I think, you know, it's an a interesting question why you have these divisions. I think for one thing, it's interesting, there's many divisions within the, 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 the population of people leaving the ultra-Orthodox community. One division is, is what we're talking about now, people um, arguing over the, the legitimate, quote-unquote, reason for leaving. Um, there's also divisions... Uh, sort of along sectarian lines, as it were. So people argue about um, what's, uh, who, who has a harder time leaving the community. Is it the Satmer uh, um, exiters? Is it the Lubavitch exiters? Is it some other group? Uh, Which, just for the listeners, it's yeah. two sects inside the Hasidic ultra-Orthodox community. Exactly. And these, these um, uh, like many um, uh, uh um, names for Hasidic communities, both Satmar and Lubavitch, um, refer back to towns or cities in Eastern Europe where the Hasidic, this particular Hasidic sect originated. So uh, now, uh, you know, they exist in many places in the world, but they're both headquartered um, in 
uh, largely in, in New York, in Brooklyn. Uh, the Satmar community actually has two headquarters, one in Brooklyn in Williamsburg, the other one in, in Monroe County. Um, and the Lubavitch community is headquartered in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. Um, so, so there's arguments uh, among people from these various sects and say who has it the hardest, whatever. There's arguments between men and women. Do men have it harder? Do women have it harder? Uh, do people who are Bali Tshuva that you mentioned before, people who join the Hasidic community from the outside world, but then uh, some of them end up deciding that they also want to leave and go back to the sort of mainstream culture, you know, are they particularly advantaged or disadvantaged? So I'm saying that there's many struggles going on. And I- but, my question, but my question is, Schneer Zalman, why do you think that people create these narratives and this competition? I mean, it's so hard anyway. <laughs> so is it like a competition about who has a harder time like like I, because it sounds for me that we speak here about like who has a better narrative in a way, and it's all constructed narrative, so I wonder why sure, sure, so right, so I think yes there I think there is a kind of competition where the one who suffered the most is the winner that's that's the the way the game is set, and I think that Uh, one reason for this type of competition is sort of a, a Freudian take, you could say, is looking at the narcissist of small difference. You know, that, that there's so much similarity between people uh, within this group, right? They all came from relatively similar communities. They all uh, went through many uh, struggles, many dif- difficulties, many challenges, you know, and They're all trying to make it in the outside world. Um, so in so many ways, there's a kind of a aspect of uniformity that they share in common. And I think in a sense, it's almost because of that, the pressure of uniformity um, where people feel a kind of a basic desire to differentiate themselves and say, look, I'm not like everyone else. You know, um, sure, there's a lot of things we have in common, but there's something really important that we have that's different. And not only that, but within this particular realm, I actually had it harder, and therefore I win. Um, and I think um, again, often people from people who are going through this process often end up socializing together. So there's a lot of time. There's ample opportunity for people to compete in this particular uh, um, uh, kind of uh, Olympics uh, where they're, they're constantly struggling for. To find some difference that they could focus on, and I also think that in a sense uh, it's an example of a residual effect it's something that they kind of uh, carry over from their upbringing where within the communities that they were raised in, there's so many uh, sectarian struggles going on so there's uh, sectarian strife between the Lubavitch and Satmar community going back to the 1980s there's uh, struggles between the Uh, all the Hasidic communities and the uh, non-Hasidic but still ultra-Orthodox uh, groups uh, that this struggle is going back uh, for 300 years over the legitimacy of the Hasidic movement itself. So there's many, many struggles within um, uh, um, the ultra-Orthodox world, divisions and subdivisions, and it's a very common feature. And I talk about this in the book, in the introduction, to kind of set the stage. There's a lot of, of these divisions and subdivisions. And again, even though to outsiders, even Jewish 
you know, outsiders, so less observant Jews, uh, they might look at uh, a Satmar person and call him a Lubavitcher, vice versa. I often have friends uh, or people that see me, they hear about my background, and they say, oh, I saw a Lubavitcher on TV. Well, then it turns out it was actually a Satmar person. Well, to me, this is a world of difference. To them, they say, well, they all look alike. I mean, aren't they the same, you know? Um, but of course, within these communities, these differences are very salient. Um, so I would argue that in a way, this type of internal struggle, finding differences and, and focusing on those differences is actually a feature of the ultra-Orthodox community and very possibly uh, the, some of the people who leave that community still maintain uh, this desire to find internal differences mm. and kind of uh, um, um, focus on them. And I think that that's another possible reason why we see these kinds of struggles over um, oh, um, over um, what is the the what who who suffered the most or what is the legitimate reason for leaving. And a third thing is that I think. Again, because the process of leaving is so um, uh, so difficult and for many people so traumatic, and at the same time, uh, for a lot of people, it is very much grounded in intellectual argumentation, and they want to know, you know, uh, who wrote the Bible? Is the Bible quote unquote legitimate? What are legitimate? forms of argumentation that you can make within the study of the Bible or the Talmud? Um, are there scientific uh, forms of analysis that are quote-unquote legitimate to help illuminate these ancient texts or what have you? So I think the issue of leg legitimacy and especially the issue of legitimacy in terms of argumentation is so central to the process of leaving itself that I think it's not surprising that within the community of people leaving, they um, are very attuned to this issue of legitimacy. And as soon as someone starts to develop a narrative about their reason for leaving, people immediately say, wait a minute, is that a legitimate narrative? Is that a legitimate argument for leaving uh, or not? So I think it's in a sense, a kind of natural outgrowth of the focus among many people in the process of leaving, the focus of are the focus on argumentation and legitimacy. Do, do they have inside the community of people who leave the rabbi who decide who is legitimate? I'm sorry, say again? Do, do they have inside the, the community of people who decide to leave the ultra-Orthodox community kind of the rabbis, and I, with quotation, like the people who tell the truth um, like who is the real person who left the community and who is like more leaving the community and who is less. Um... Right, right, right. No, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, that's a, that's a good question. Are there authority figures within the, uh, the, the uh, Exeter community? And I think that. Yeah. And, and, and I'm thinking, I'm sorry to, to, so I'm thinking about even about, because it's connected also to technical things. So I don't know about the American, but um, I know in the Israeli narrative, the Israeli story, um, there are two organizations, two, three organizations who really support the people who leave the ultra-Orthodox community. But then there are the question, who is inside, to whom we support, because the, the, you know, the money and the financial support is very limited. So they need to decide to whom we support and who we say, you know what, this is 
you didn't really left the ultra-Orthodox. You left only the modern Orthodox or things like that. And who you really support. Like, for example, in Israel, so we have people who didn't grow up at all with Hebrew. I wonder if it's like, if you have English, so you have a little bit more capital that you can, you know, engage with if you don't have it. I think about in Israel, women, they study secular studies. So when they leave, at least they have, you know, the... Um, the high school degree, the the boys do not have it. So I wonder if you saw these differences also here. Right. So definitely some of the arguments that I was talking about before in terms of who has it worse, you know, when, when either when they were inside or their process of leaving, um, some of it very much maps along the lines that you're, you're indicating. So for instance, um, uh, people who are leaving only modern Orthodox, right, uh, communities. So they presumably got a decent secular education, right? So it's clear that someone could say that they had an easier time integrating into the larger society because they already spoke the language and, you know, learned at least the rudiments of math and science and so on. Whereas Hasidic people who tend not to get very much, if any, of the secular education, they're lacking that um, familiarity to start off with. Um, uh, and then also women, yes, in America as well, Hasidic women tend to get much more secular education than Hasidic men. So these kinds of things um, exist here. And again, people certainly refer to them. Uh, but in terms of um, sort of authority figures within the, um, the Exeter community, there certainly are some famous people who uh, have written memoirs, for instance, of their experience. Um, I think that those are probably some of the most kind of well-known figures within this population. But it's interesting. On the one hand, some people really look up to them and they say, oh, you know, those are models to emulate or those are uh, certainly people to, to really respect, look how far they came, they wrote a memoir, they were so successful, you know, and at the same time, for all sorts of psychological reasons, some people look at them as, as uh, especially appropriate targets for abuse, you know, who do those people think they are, do you think that they're really smarter than me or my friend sitting next to me, um, do you think that they really understand the real questions, uh, did they get the real problems with the community, or did they only get the superficial parts, you know, so, so you have that going on, and the same thing in America, we also have uh, organization Footsteps, which is a New York-based uh, um, NGO, and that tries to help people who are leaving the Orthodox community. And again, many people in this population are connected to the organization and really appreciate it. Some of them feel that this organization maybe even you know helped save their life, that they were, were in a very difficult situation and they provided uh, necessary support and, and uh, services. At the same time, other people feel like either the organization ha doesn't go nearly far enough or the organization is, is, is um, wrong-headed and they're not focusing on the important things. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we have to realize that we're talking about a population of people who are rebels, like by definition, they rebelled against the system that they grew up in. So it's not surprising that at least some of them are cantankerous because, you know, these are people who by definition are, 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 are uh, um, very attuned to uh, inconsistencies in uh, uh, institutions or 
uh, in uh, um, um, you know figure um, leadership um, figures. So they're 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 especially um, prone to um, finding um, things that are not perfect about either individual um, kind of figures who leave the community or even uh, among organizations that are trying to help this population. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Which is interesting, right? That in a way, because the ultra-Orthodox narrative speaks about perfection, it's like you have the rabbi who is a perfect figure and you have the Torah, which is the truth. And there is probably, I guess, a desire, even when you live, that you will find perfection now in the secular world. And maybe this is something that holds you because I think that one of the things that we see in Western secular society, like among people who grew up in this generation, is the walking without knowing. It's like the skeptic, right? And here you have the rebel, but the rebel come because the rebel wants more truth. Like they feel that something is not right, right? Um, so it's so interesting what you bring. Yeah, if I could just come yeah, please. That, of I, course. I think that one of, of the things that's really interesting about this topic, and again, I don't uh, focus on this in this book, but it's something that's really worth thinking about is sort of, because again, this book is focusing on the process of leaving and sort of where people end up religiously and in terms of their relationship to their family after they leave. That's really kind of the, the, the focus here. But one thing that's really interesting to look at is um, how people respond to the outside, quote unquote, secular world. And I think that 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 uh, at least sometime, sometimes you hear that people who leave the ultra-Orthodox community, even though um, maybe they're happy that they left, at the same time, there are disappointments. And I think that part of it gets to what you were just describing, that, that people, when they, before they leave, they're very aware of the, the, the shortcomings of their community of origin, maybe their family of origin, their neighbors, the spiritual or religious leaders of their community, you know, and they tend to uh, 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 develop a kind of utopian view of the outside world, where essentially they blame all of the problems or the difficulties of their life, let's say, um, you know, abuse that they experienced, they tend to ascribe that to 
the the religious doctrines or or rituals or communal infrastructure of their community. And they basically feel, well, of course, this would never happen in the outside world. And it's a it's a, for instance, one thing that um Footsteps as an organization tried to look into a little bit was the issue of sexual abuse. So we know that some of the people who leave these communities experience um, you know, horrific sexual abuse in the community. So it's it's not surprising that they might develop a narrative that says, well, these things happen in the Hasidic community because sexuality itself is such a taboo and people don't talk about it and people don't get sex education. So they're unaware of when they're being abused or even if they are aware, there aren't uh, the, uh, um, the properly developed channels to report this abuse and, and stop it and so on, prevent it. Um, but then when they leave the community, they find that people are also abused uh, sexually in the outside world. And, and this could be a very um, you know, disheartening realization. And uh, then essentially people have to go through a process of recalibration to understand, well, you know, uh, even though there are these negative things uh, in the outside secular world, I'm still glad that I left, but I really have to, you know, uh, make certain adjustments in my thinking and my behavior in order to confront the realities of the negative realities that still exist in the outside world. Thank you. Um, can you say a little bit about, can we find difference between um, ultra-Orthodox who left before the virtual and the internet become more, like, become more accessible and people who left before? I, I just wonder because people who left before, they didn't know where do they go. Um, People who are living now, um, at least for some of them, probably the first steps is to still be inside the community, but to start using the internet, um, to start learning. I mean, today you mentioned um, you mentioned the organization that helps. So we have on Netflix um, one of us as an incredible documentary about the phenomena, and we have also Unorthodox, which is um, 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 a series after the book of uh, Deborah Feldman. And I wonder, which means that even the non-ultra-Orthodox world is more, they can learn more about this unique community. But it's also true about the other side. I mean, you can have, you can go to, you can find other people who left the community. And I wonder if you found in your research a di difference between people who left 10 years ago, maybe, when it was less popular, the internet, less accessible than today. Right. So all, uh, it's a really good question. Um, for my study, um, it, it tended to focus on the, you know, the research um, was conducted about uh, you know, seven, eight years ago. Um, so it was during one period and I tended to focus on people in their uh, early 20s to early 30s. So we really have uh, you know, one cohort. Um, there were a few people in the study that were older, but it's hard right. to draw too, much, too many conclusions from such a small sample. Um, but I, I definitely think that the internet um, plays a role uh, or could play a role in the process of leaving. And certainly people could uh, find information, as you were saying, uh, make uh, social contacts, you know, through the internet. At the same time, I think that, um, and that's, you know, that could be great. But at the same time, 
I think that so much of what is traumatic about the process of leaving uh, has to do with things that go so deep that a simple Google search, you know, is, is, is very hard to uncover. So people may know a lot of information. I mean, even think about a simple thing, so to speak, like college, right? People are thinking about attending college. So they could Google, they could find out, you know, all sorts of basic information, how much it costs, what exams you have to take in order to get into the college or what have you. But it's very hard to know what the experience of going to college is like, uh, especially for someone who left the ultra-Orthodox community and came from an uh, ultra-Orthodox world and has an ultra-Orthodox worldview, uh, I think it's very hard to, to really get at those kinds of issues, uh, even um, with the aid of a smartphone, which is, as you know, forbidden within many of these communities, specifically because they're concerned that it allows people to, to be exposed to all sorts of outside influences that they're trying to, to keep at bay. Um, but I think the, the point is that it does help in some ways, but I think a lot of the, the trauma and the, and the, the challenges um, of leaving the ultra-Orthodox community are still, and, and, the, and the absence of certain kinds of information, I think is uh, still very much present, even with, uh, in the age of the, the digital age and the uh, uh, information superhighway. Hmm. I wonder, when, when people think about leaving the community, the ultra-Orthodox community, we think about people who wish to be um, secular or they want to leave the religion. Um, I wonder if we have other cases which are the opposite. I, I met some of them in Israel, people who left the community because they wanted to be closer, not to the ultra-Orthodox a community, but they wanted to be closer to the divine, that they felt that the tools that they got inside the community do not give them um, the best ways, or they give them maybe in, in an incredible one way, but they feel that they need to find other ways. Um, and then you meet them in interface dialogue places, you meet them finding the divine by in, in secular, by art or music, um, do we do we have them? Did you find? So I, I I hear what you're saying, and I think that it's certainly possible that we have people that would frame their leaving in that way. Um, I I I don't think I can't think of a particular uh, person I interviewed that described it like that. But I would say that some of the people, not all, but some of the people that leave are the most or were the most sincere people in their community of origin. In other words, even though, again, within these communities of, of religious communities, ultra-Orthodox communities, the assumption is that people who leave are bums. They're the lowlifes. They're the riffraff. They're, uh, you know, people who are never serious about studying or never serious about piety. Um, but the truth is that some of the people that leave are the exact opposite. They were the most sincere they were the 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 the, the Rebbe's favorite students. They were the the most pious. I mean, I, I spoke to some people who were taking on fasting in the community, on you know, on their own kind of private fasting in order to reach higher spiritual heights. Uh, people who were so punctilious with the mitzvot, with the, with the religious 
commandments that they were made fun of by other people in the ultra orthodox community and basically were told hey you're a, you're a fanatic well, you know what, what what are you trying to do what do you you think we're in a cult you think we're crazy here i mean this is Lubavitch. this is satmar we're not crazy we're not going to do the kind of stuff you're doing you know so people that were truly truly um committed to the principles of the community and it's because they either found that the other people around them were not nearly as serious as they were or they found some kind of intellectual uh, um, or emotional disconnect with the community that caused them to leave but in other words they didn't leave because they quote-unquote wanted to have a good time they left because they felt disenchanted by uh, uh, the, the the piety or the, the pursuit of piety within these communities. Um, so in other words, they left because they felt that these communities failed on the, the, the precise uh, yardstick that the community holds up as being so important, as being the thing, the, the avenue to connect them to the divine. So definitely there's some people like that. Again, I, certainly not all of them, but some people are very much uh, um, within this model. Fascinating. So, Shner Zalman, I want, to, I want to bring here an old Jewish text, a story, because the Hasidim, the, the ultra-Orthodox, they love stories. There, there is a story in the Talmud, in the tractate, which called Chagiga, about four top rabbis who decided to meet with the divine. One of them died, and I think about... Let's first tell the story. One of them died. The second become crazy. The third lost. Um, he became the other. This is his nickname. And the fourth, he came in peace and left in peace. What is fascinating for me in this story, I mean, there are many elements, is that three of the four, we don't know their names. Because the first two, the one who died and the one who became crazy, we call them in the name of their parent. We don't call them in their name, right? And the, and the third one who, who lost his identity, he became the real rebel against the divine. Um, and he said that there is no, there is more than one, which is the same in Judaism. Um, he's called the other. And I'm thinking about the incredible stories and narratives that you bring in your book. We have those who commit suicide. And this is a phenomena that we we all aware of, right? About people who commit suicide, which is part of the living. I mean, the living also seriously their body and soul, right? We have those who who lost it, who who became crazy in the meaning. It can be in different ways, right? It's like, or that they become very radical in in into drugs and and other things that they try. Or that they can be also crazy in the meaning that they never left, in the meaning that they keep dealing with the narrative of the living, right? They meet only with ultra-Orthodox who left like them, and they like struggle, struggle. And then there are the ones who, and, and then there is the two others which are fascinating, one who come in peace and live with peace, which I wonder what changed in him. Uh, maybe he was just really not ready to be ultra-Orthodox or something like that. And then you have the one who became an other, the other. And I wonder if you can take this story and tell us something about the narratives of living. 
Yeah. So, so uh, that's a, a wonderful um, story, and I've thought a lot about it. And um, it's interesting. One thing that jumps out of me, uh, uh, you mentioned a story from the Talmud. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the spiritual leader of the community that I left, he talked about this story. And he says, he made an interesting uh, observation. He says that Rabbi Akiva, the fourth one, the one who came in peace and, and went in peace, or, um, um, it, he says it's interesting that it, it says he came in peace and he went in peace. And the Bavitcher Rebbe comments that you might think that those two things are incidental. It happens to be that he came in peace and it happens to be he went in peace. Uh, uh, and he says that that's not the case, that there's a causal relationship. It's because he came in peace, he went uh, to heaven, to this higher realm in a, in a, in a state of, of, of peace and preparedness that he was able to then exit it and, uh, in a peaceful way, in a harmonious way. And I think that that is very relevant to what we're talking about, because um, as you uh, are aware, there's a lot of politics around the narrative, around these stories. We talked before about the internal politics among the Exeter community, but there's also a, a struggle between the Exeter community and their community of origin over the issue of narrative, right? Why do people leave? Well, from the perspective of the community, People of the religious community, people leave because they're mashuga, they're crazy, they have a mental problem. In other words, there's something wrong with them, not with us. The community is sacred. The community is is upstanding, is is proper, is flawless, at least in principle. And any uh, um, anyone who leaves, it's the, the the deficiency is in them. They're they're too um, lustful. They're not able to control their 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 um, bodily desires, so therefore they leave. Or they're mentally deficient; they have a mental illness, and that's why they leave. You know, so there's this whole struggle going on. And then, from the perspective of the people who leave, they certainly reject um, this narrative from their community of origin. So the point is that, and especially the issue of mental illness. Um, comes up within this um, struggle over narrative, um, and of course, uh, in a population, we're not clear. Uh, we're not. We don't know exactly how many people leave the ultra orthodox community. Uh, we don't have great uh, quantitative studies on it, but one study estimates that there's uh, 10,000 people worldwide who leave the ultra-Orthodox community. Another study puts the number higher. Uh, assuming the 10,000 figure, any group of people that has 10,000 uh, souls, uh, there's going to be some people that have a mental illness. So the real question is not, do any exiters have a mental illness? The real question is, do all the exiters have a mental illness? And secondly, uh, is the reason why they leave due to the mental illness? So even if you look at an individual, uh, a person who may have a mental illness or a subdivision of the total population of exiters who have mental illnesses, is the reason why they leave due to that mental illness? In the same way that um, I spoke to, I interviewed one person who was sexually abused. He told me he was sexually abused in the community. The interesting thing is that from the perspective of his family and others in the community, they argued that the reason why he left is because of the sexual abuse. Whereas according to the person I interviewed, he said, yes, 
I was sexually abused. It was a very traumatic thing. But that's not the main reason or even one of the really important reasons for why I left. There's all sorts of things that were going on in my life. It happens to be that I was sexually abused. So there's a big issue about how do you um, you, you frame the, the narrative, the reason for leaving. Um, so to go back to Rabbi Akiva, this uh, um, uh, ancient rabbi who uh, went in peace and returned in peace from the, the higher realm that the Talmud discusses, the point is that some people who leave the Hasidic community, they were um, you know, doing very well uh, in the community. They, they, um, they, uh, they were, were healthy in terms of their mental health. And then when they leave the community, they're also, um, you know, they don't have uh, struggles with mental illness. Other people um, might have challenges uh, within the community, and when they leave, they may continue to have challenges. But again, the way that the, the that the Hasidic community frames it is, well, the reason that they left is because of the mental illness, rather than saying there could be any number of reasons why the person left. It just happens to be that they also have a mental illness. So I think that, that the way that um, these narratives are framed are, is really important, and there's a big struggle between these community of origin, uh, the, the community of origins, at, of origin, and the people who are leaving them over um, how to, to to frame the issue. Which is which I, I can totally understand why for the community is very important because if it's about mentally mental issues, so in their narrative it means that they didn't do anything wrong, right? Um, and therefore, if you just raise a proper, um, in a proper way, everything will be okay. But I guess that there are other voices who understand that it's more complicated. Um, and, and I also, I think about that because one of the fascinating things in your book is about the relationship between the people who left and the people who, and their families. And one thing that um, surprised me, because maybe in Israel it's a bit different, um, is that many times in Israel, at least for a few years, there is a totally disconnection from the family towards the person who, for the child who left the community. Um, and, and it sounds that here um, it's, more, it's more gentle. There is a, there is a gentler dance. Um, and, and then... I wonder about like the narratives inside the family, because even if the community said that this child who left or this husband or wife who left, they have mental um, 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 challenges, then for the, for the family, it's probably a different narrative because it's a family member. Right. So I, I did notice that within the scholarship that talks about people leaving in the in, in the Israeli context, uh, it does seem like the the communal response is harsher than it is in Israel. And you could think about something about the Israeli culture, and um, you know there might be a a, a a more sort of intense piety within the Israeli context compared to the American context. Um, but but that do, there does seem to be uh, sort of regional differences. Um, uh, at the same time, even within the American context, in the book, I talk about how the Lubavitch community 
uh, or the Satmar community rather, responds much more harshly to people leaving than the Lubavitch community. So even within the American context, we see variation in terms of just how um, how repressive or harsh the response is. But even, but among both communities that I look at, um, in in general. Um, People, after they leave, even though initially when they leave, there could be a kind of break with their family, but after a period, sort of like a cooling off period, they tend to, to, to build bridges and find some way to, to reconnect and to maintain uh, family relations. Again, to go back <laughs> to Rabbi Akiva, it, 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 it depends what the status of the family relations or the family dynamic was pre-exit, that has a big influence on the kind of uh, family dynamic post-exit. So some of the people that I interviewed came from profoundly uh, destabilized and dysfunctional families where there really was abuse or neglect. Um, And in, in those contexts, it's not surprising that people are really not eager to reconnect with their family, or sometimes they really refuse, even when the family wanted to reconnect with them, they simply refused. They said, no, these people are toxic, and I, I don't want to be in a relationship with them. Um, whereas other people who left, who really had a loving relationship with their family before they left, um, were often eager to reconnect with their family. So even though there, there was this period of cooling off, sometimes for several months, sometimes even for several years, um, but once this period was, um, you know, ended, uh, we, we see uh, that the, the, they tend to reconnect with their family. Again, there's a, there's a spectrum in terms of what that family dynamic uh, looks like. Right, you know, right. Some people, it's just uh, calling their family a few times a year, maybe before uh, major Jewish holidays to wish them, you know, happy holidays. Um, in some cases, uh, people would visit their family a few times a year, again, often related to Jewish holidays, but these tended to be short visits, sort of awkward encounters, um, somewhat cold or the reception. Uh, and in other cases, many other cases, there seemed to be genuine um, you know, closeness uh, between the family and the person that left. And people might right. often, people might be really a part of their family's life and they go to family uh, celebrations, weddings, bar mitzvahs, and so on. They go to visit sort of on a regular Sunday. Um, you know, so, so there was, um, there was a, a, a spectrum, but the, the main point is that there seemed to be a real effort on the part of the, the exiters as well as on the part of their families to try to reconnect and to try to have some kind of relationship, notwithstanding the vast uh, uh, religious and cultural differences between them. Thank you. So Schneer Zalman, final question. Um, and it's about the body. A person decides to leave the community. And my question is, can you tell us a little bit about the narratives of the bodies? And I will, maybe I will, I will, I will say um, when I grew up in um, the ultra-Orthodox community, um, one of our rabbis, he said, you, I cannot promise that you will not sin. I can promise that you will not enjoy from that. Because something in the body is so trained in a way that even when you do 
and 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 um, when you do um, a scene something there probably because of the narrative and the way of grow and the trauma and and the body so how the body perceives the world it takes the body to a long journey to live can you can you um, tell us a little bit about the journey of the body in living sure the first thing I have to say is that within Lubavitch there's a famous saying anyone who eats the kasha the Schwarze kasha the black kasha that they had in the yeshiva in in Lubavitch in Eastern Europe, uh, uh, by that they meant anyone who was sort of a part of the yeshiva will never enjoy this world again. So similar to what you were saying, you 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 might indulge, but you won't you won't enjoy. <laughs> and uh, so so they have this kind of idea, and it's certainly true um, that 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 it takes a very long time for the body to learn. Uh, even the things that the mind has already learned, you know, in terms of the exiting process. So in the book, again, I focus on these residual effects. I look at both intellectual um, issues, things uh, about people's attitudes and beliefs that stay with them from their community of origin, as well as uh, behavioral things and bodily things that sort of stay with people. Uh, to take one example of the, the body, how this plays out. It's the fact that we both of us speak with the hands all the time well, here yeah, in the... That the, 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 the listeners can't see that, but that's right. that definitely... <laughs> uh, plus, in the book, I also talk about shuckling, about swaying. So uh, a bunch of the people I spoke to, uh, especially men, told me that growing up, they spent so much time in the uh, yeshiva study halls, uh, uh, sitting, uh, reading the Talmud, and constantly swaying when they were reading it. And then they found, even when they left, even when they went to you know uh, major universities, uh, they were studying secular things, when they were sitting in the, the library reading their books, they found, they caught themselves shuckling that they were still swaying over the text. But instead of a Talmud, it was a, you know, a, a, a book of French philosophy. So, uh, so yes, that's a, a kind of um, um, bodily uh, ritual or bodily um, um, behavior, mannerism that, they, that stayed with them from their upbringing. But the thing that I was thinking of, which I talk about in the book, has to do with their relationship to pork. So uh, uh, when I interviewed the people in the book and I asked them, do they believe that uh, God wrote the Torah? They said, oh, absolutely not. Well, do you believe that God exists? Well, maybe, maybe not. There is a diversity of opinions. Then I would say, well, do you keep kosher? Oh, absolutely not. We do not follow the strict uh, kosher laws that we grew up with. I would say, okay, uh, well, do you eat chazer? Do you eat pork? Do you eat pig? And suddenly, not everyone, but a lot of people said, no, 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 that we don't do. We do a lot of things, but we don't do that. And I asked them, well, well why not? I mean, you know, if you don't follow the, the, the kosher dietary laws, what's the, holding you back from eating pork? And um, I remember one Lubavitch woman told me, well, uh, I don't eat pork because pork is disgusting. And I said, pork is disgusting. I mean, millions of people, I don't know, billions of people around the world seem to enjoy it. Uh, what do you mean it's disgusting? And she said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not saying that it uh, taste-wise is disgusting. I'm saying personality-wise, 
pigs are disgusting, you know? And then I realized that there was a kind of uh, indoctrination that these people went through in their community where they were told that pigs are disgusting. Pigs are a disgusting animal. Pigs are not kosher. They're dirty. They're unclean. And therefore, we don't eat them. And for a lot of the people, these people, even when they left, even when they changed so many things about their, their, their lifestyle, there was a kind of psychosomatic effect on their body that they simply couldn't tolerate pig. In fact, one woman told me that she once ate pig by accident, even though she left the community, she was not orthodox in her mind at all. And she ate uh, little tiny pieces of, of, uh, of, of uh, pig. And then she actually went to the bathroom in the restaurant and tried to make herself throw up because she was just so disgusted by the notion that she had consumed pig. And I think that this is an example of, even though intellectually she can't really uh, uh, make a coherent argument that there's something wrong with pig or that pig is actually more disgusting than cows or some other animal that she's used to eating. But the mere fact that she grew up, that her body was trained to, to, uh, to not eat pig, suddenly uh, it became very difficult, if not impossible, to turn that off. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways in which people's bodies are much slower to respond to the changes that they're going through than their mind is. Schneer Zalman Newfield, thank you for writing Degrees of Separation. It was a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.